Well, good evening. I'm Brandon Mercer. And I'm Joshua Stein. Today is Thursday, January 14th, 2016, and this is episode 9 of Garbage. So this week in Garbage, we're going to talk about um, all the things that have happened in OpenBSD. It's been a rather eventful week. We have a, a number of things to cover. And then we had a, a couple user requests. We're going to get to uh, one of them tonight. Uh, the first request was from Joris Van Hecke. Um, and he was asking us to talk a little bit about virtualization. Sounds good. Yeah, I see you're playing Quake on OpenBSD now. Yeah, of all the things that I've spent time doing uh, on <laughs> OpenBSD, um, it was kind of funny. I've, I've had a, a lot of interactions this week. Aaron Bieber was um, actually making use of your um, HID refactoring that you uh, were working on, and he said he knew that I had an ErgoDox, and he asked me if my ErgoDox was having issues, and I said no. And um, and then he uh, tried his YubiKey stuff, and he was... Um, having some issues with his YubiKey as well. And then I guess you guys sorted out uh, some issues with the HID refactoring? Yeah, so when I split the HID code out of the USB directory into its own HID directory uh, for use with the new I2C stuff, the way that they were kind of linked to the USB code before, there was uh, there are like USB level quirks in terms mm-hmm. of uh, this product from this vendor has this problem. And so when it attaches, it gets that quirk. And then that would filter down into the HID level for certain quirks. And so when I split them, um, the quirks needed to be separated so that the HID layer knew nothing about the USB layer. And in doing that, um, I screwed something up with um, initializing a variable. And so the quirks that were getting passed down to the HID layer were wrong. So um, I guess there was a particular uh, quirk or not a quirk, I don't remember, for the uh, YubiKey, and so it was um, not sending its like fake keyboard commands. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, as soon as uh, Aaron said that something might be wrong with the, with the YubiKey, I figured it might be related to that, so I went and uh, figured it out. So, sorry to Aaron if I caused him to uh, not be able to log into any servers. Yeah, he was telling me um, that he only experienced a problem on the Ergo Docs when he was typing fast, and then he said there was like an interrupt storm or something was happening like that. But anyway, um, I noticed, so right after, um, or Friday last week, you, you started committing changes for um, your trackpad drivers and refactoring and all that kind of stuff was happening, and you were able to get all that stuff in and handle all of the fallout. Nothing had to get reverted or anything, but there were a couple things that needed to get uh, ironed out. And really, it looked like it, was, it went pretty well, pretty successful for something, uh, what I would consider a rather intrusive change. Uh, yeah, for the head layer stuff, um, I probably could have done that uh, a little bit slower, because after I committed it all, and then Theo was doing a um, compile on alpha, I think, um, the kernel would no longer compile due to a collision in a variable name with the um, changes that I made. And so I tried to do a fix, and then talking to Theo some more, we realized that like there was a better fix, and so the ultimate result was that um, I could have done the change a lot easier and less intrusive, so it wouldn't have had to touch all those USB drivers at all. 
but it's all in now. And then um, Marka Tennis has a new uh, Asus laptop that needed um, the I2C uh, controller driver that I was working on because it has the same one. And his keyboard is actually attached over I2C as well, so he had no working mouse or keyboard. Um, so I was going back and forth with him, and he tested it and found some problems, but um, said to just commit it as it was, and we'd figure stuff out in the tree. So I committed the the ACPI driver for the I2C controller, and then the uh, I2C HID uh, mouse, or I guess the I2C HID driver, and then the mouse, the I2C hid mouse driver that sits underneath that. Um, and then today, Mark uh, committed a really simple um, I2C hid keyboard driver. So he's all up and running now with um, his mouse and keyboard over I2C. Yep. And he, I think I, I heard him mention that it was working inside of X as well. Yeah. Um, and I was actually looking at his D message and his mouse reports that um, it has the two buttons and a Z coordinate. So I'm guessing that he has uh two finger scrolling uh working by default because the hardware implements it mm -hmm. so what i'm actually working on now is now that the basic mouse driver is in um, i'm writing the multi-touch uh mouse driver which just tells the trackpad to go into um it's like non-standard mode which basically emulates a mouse and then um starts doing multi-touch you know, tracking of all the individual fingers and everything, and then sends like a different format in the packet. So I have to, the driver basically has to interpret those packets and keep track of all the fingers and all that stuff. Yeah, very cool. That has been uh, a lot of work, and it's exciting to see that, um, I mean, already it's getting used by more than just your your laptop. So that's exciting stuff. Yeah, um, I saw on... Uh, I think it was MISC. Um, a user posted a D message from the uh, Dell XPS 13, um, mm -hmm. and I think I had rightly guessed before that it had the same controller, and it turns out that he did. So um, some bug fixes went in from Mark f to get stuff working on his machine and just to fix some small uh, issues that I had in my implementation. So um, everything should be good to go. So I'm hoping that that uh, XPS 13 user can update and see if his... Uh, stuff works now. Yeah, that's awesome. Hey, uh, speaking of bug fixes, um, we talked last episode about, um, Stefan Sperling doing the, uh, wireless end stuff and all that, that entailed. And there was actually some fixes that went in, uh, recently for some stability in the IWN driver. And I guess there was something that may have broken for turbo mode for every other wireless driver. So, um, everybody's kind of tidying up their loose ends on these, um, improvements that they're making lately. So that's, um, I don't know, uh, you were talking about, uh, you know, your wireless being extremely fast. Mine is as well. I'm, I think I'm seeing like two and a half megabytes a second or something like that over wireless now. I have slow wireless. <laughs> oh, um, cause I don't, the Atheros wireless card on my new laptop is not supported. So I'm uh, running a little USB Wi-Fi thing. It's the URTWN driver, mm -hmm. and it's um, not particularly fast because it hasn't been updated to use uh, 802.11n, and it's just you know a tiny little USB thing. So I'm jealous of all you guys that have IWN and IWM that actually get to use uh, wireless N. 
Uh, that's too bad. Yeah. Cause it, it is really, really nice. I mean, I used to complain, you know, I was like, why is my laptops downloading stuff so much faster in windows than it does in OpenBSD? Yeah. And, uh, sure enough, that's what it is. The thing I noticed most about, even when I had like a fast IWN, uh, device is that even on the same machine running OpenBSD, when you'd switch between ethernet and wireless, the, it seemed like the latency on wireless is so much higher. And so that contributed I think more than anything to like slow loading web pages and stuff, it was just mm -hmm. the latency of, you know, sending out the DNS request and then all the stupid websites that have a million uh, assets on them now that you have to download. So yeah. that just kind of back and forth over the, the wireless seemed a lot slower than over ethernet. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's, um, it, it's exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to have that kind of work going in. It's, it's going to be good moving forward for sure. Yeah. So, the other thing that's been happening, um, Aaron Bieber, I mentioned him earlier. Um, he also, um, did a port of IO Quake 3. And, um, it's basically the patched and updated and maintained version of Quake 3. And, um, yeah, he sent out a diff for it. And I kind of sent out a, a follow up to some Quake 2 stuff. And, uh, he's like, oh, yeah. So we were, uh, testing a port by playing quake three <laughs> last night until you know 10 o'clock at night but um it, it's really actually surprising how well these games work um io quake three i would there are um high resolution higher resolution uh maps that someone did and um they play really smooth i remember playing them in college and it was like you'd take you know 20 or 30 seconds to load up a um, a level, you know, and it'd be like loading the map, loading the map. Now it's like you click on the level, wait for a split second, and then the thing's up and you're ready to go. Yeah. Um, but they play really well and it's a lot of fun. So, um, hopefully we'll be getting the, um, the Quake 2 port that's in ports that's broken for like two years now replaced with Y Quake 2, um, which is again a maintained and patched version, um, so that we can have that in there as well. So, a little bit of adva advancement on the gaming front, uh, which we were joking about, or I was joking about last week. Um, I actually hooked up my um, 4K monitor to the display port on my X220, and I put Quake up on my 4K monitor and started playing a little bit just now just to see how it worked, and it was flawless. It plays really smooth. So these newer versions of IO Quake or whatever, what is different about them than, like I guess, the official Quake that came out? Uh, the only thing I know is, so like, ID Software did the original stuff and they stopped maintaining, they, they open sourced, uh, the game engine, mm -hmm. but you still have to buy, like, the game so you can get the, um, the maps and the textures and all that kind of stuff. And, um, IO Quake took that open source project and kept, you know, auditing the code and doing security and bug fixes to it and kind of kept maintaining it after, um, you know, the original author let it go. So, uh, the game itself, no different. The code underneath has been fixed and maintained and made to work better. So uh, that's really the only difference that I know there is. Hmm. I remember uh, playing the old Wolfenstein 3D mm -hmm. uh, on OpenBSD, and I actually just went and Googled for it because I didn't know if it was in the ports tree or not, and I found my post to the uh, ports <laughs> mailing list in 2002 <laughs> submitting yeah. my port of Wolfenstein 3D. That's really cool. Uh, yeah, so um, 
as far as games go, we, um, I, I'm still kind of uh, missing Half-Life. And um, Quake 4 is another one that I have that I've purchased many, many years ago. And I, I don't think that one will work on OpenBSD without a, a bit of um, work because I think it uses a different engine than the rest of the other games. But, um, mm. yeah, Half-Life and Unreal Tournament and Quake were kind of my things that I liked to do when I was much, much younger. Yeah, I think uh, Wolfenstein 3D and I think like the first Doom uh, were the games that I played back mm-hmm. in my youth, and anything past that was just too advanced for me. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, enough about games, really. A um, couple other interesting advancements. Um, I was commenting to someone about having like issues with Chrome, and um, I was not concerned, but curious to see what was going on with that because I, I noticed like I had to shut it down once a day um, I noticed that there was like some rendering issues and um, whatever happened when I upgraded my snapshot from around January 5th to the more recent one from January 12th um, that all seems to have gone away so at least some of my chrome issues are a little bit better um, and I'm not quite sure what caused that but I did notice um, a couple things that have changed in there and I'm hoping like maybe it was like pledge improvements even though I wasn't seeing stuff in pledge um but well I I don't really know but that's a that's a good thing uh that has improved over just a week and this will probably be a good segue into our our user request but um Mike B has been working on some interrupt handling um and I guess the issue was is that there was um the Hyper-V network controller um, was not working well on OpenBSD, and it was due to how we were handling some interrupt acknowledgement, and I guess we were kind of like ignoring things a little bit too much, and you really can't do that, um, but that's with very limited understanding of what was going on there, but I guess he's been working to improve that, and um, he has that... Um, network controller working uh, quite a bit better now, so that's a good thing. I think um, the diff went out to tech, maybe? I don't know. Uh, in the past day or so, so some interrupt uh, handling rework that he did, and uh, yeah, so he also did something with um, Zen this week. Yeah, it was enabled uh, by default, so now yeah. we have Zen support by default. Yep. That's very cool. So many good things happening on the virtualization front um, and the networking front and the um, trackpad, I2C, um, USB front. So um, exciting stuff happening. There's actually a bunch of things that happened this week. Probably um, one of the more noisy ones was this morning where um, there was... um, a CVE published about OpenSSH, and um, I think uh, Qualys did the discovery on this particular item, but basically what happened was we had um, uh, some code enabled in the SSH client um, for roaming profiles. So if you were using SSH and um, you got disconnected for whatever reason and, you know, resumed for whatever reason, it would kind of like pick up where it left off and it would reconnect to that server and all that stuff. And 
this was not a complete feature. This was not documented in the man page. Um, the server side never implemented it. Um, but the client had a couple pretty nasty bugs in it um, that uh, Qualys found and um, did some really, really good analysis on. And um, it, I was really surprised the amount of detail that this um, CVE had in it. Um, did you take the time to read that? I did. Uh, it's pretty interesting bug. Um, from what I've gathered, it looks like the um, the client-side code for this uh, roaming feature was like a proprietary extension that some other server, uh, some other SSH server implemented. So the support for the client uh, side of it was uh, committed into OpenSSH. And I don't know if like the server was ever, if the OpenSSH server was ever going to get that code to make it work. Um, but it seemed like it was just kind of a thing like, hey, this server supports it. Can you just add this code to the client? Um, to turn it on when we advertise it, and because probably nobody else runs that uh, commercial server uh, much, I guess nobody really noticed that it was still there, and it never really did anything until unless the server advertised that it supported that feature. So the um, exploit that uh, Qualys uh, created, I guess, just advertises that feature to um, get it to run that that uh, bad code. Mm-hmm. And, and what winds up happening is, is if you connect to or get a man in the middle, I don't know, um, it, it'd probably be more likely that you'd have um, a compromised host. But if someone was advertising that they supported this, they could um, read information out of your heap that uh, might be sensitive, including your private keys. And um, there's all sorts of details on their write-up. Uh, they did a the thing that I was impressed with is normally you get like, um, you know, this, this summary that's like open SSH is vulnerable to everything, uh, huge vulnerability. And it's, they don't talk about what platform they don't talk about any of the details. And they did a really good job of talking about, um, how the operating system and the compilers, um, all kind of played a part into, uh, the different levels of, um, severity that this particular bug or exploit um, could have, and I think that uh, you know that I think that really I, that impressed me quite a bit. You know, to read that kind of uh, clarity and detail from a CVE. I wonder how long they've been working on uh, trying to exploit this. Yeah, because they they seem to have a really good. Um, I mean, they had a really good amount of knowledge about. Uh, the way things work. I mean, you could tell that they'd run through several different iterations of tests on this to to figure out what was going to happen. Because um, they did tests on FreeBSD and OpenBSD and various Linux and uh, with different um, tool chains, and they explained the differences in the, the way that the memory allocators worked on Linux versus on BSD. Um, yeah, just tons and tons of details that went into that. Yep, and so a new uh, release of OpenSSH is out today with uh, a fix to disable that code by default, and then in current on OpenBSD, all of that code has actually been ripped out. Um, mm -hmm. So the next uh, release of portable OpenSSH will just have all of that code ripped out, but for now, you can either uh, upgrade your uh, non-OpenBSD servers uh, to disable that by default or just set that in your uh, 
config to turn it off. Yeah, in your SSH underscore config, um, there's a, an undocumented option. I'm sure you can find it on Twitter, but it is, um, what is it, use roaming equals mm-hmm. off or on? Uh, so you would you would write use roaming space no um, that would just turn it off. So yeah, that was kind of a uh, made for a little bit of a long morning, and um, of course there was a, a bunch of trolls feeding <laughs> a bunch of rubbish out there. So yeah, there were some on uh, lobsters that Theo read and sent me messages on ICB like complaining about that. But uh, yeah, there was definitely no attempt to cover up this this bug as some people are saying it was um basically the the only warning that theo could really give out was like here's how to mitigate the problem because uh, as soon as we commit a fix for it everyone's going to instantly know where the the vulnerable code is and could you know come up with an exploit before everyone else is able to tr- disable the option yeah. so while we're preparing the release uh, because the release had to be uh you know made and verified by different people of the OpenSSH team, and then it has to be like signed and pushed out to the servers and all that other stuff. Um, so Theo was able to basically just say, you know, here's how do you, here's how you disable the feature and the details will be coming uh, shortly, which yeah. they did. Yeah. And, and I think that went well. Um, we, there was a lot of um, communication on Twitter and social media about um, how to mitigate the issue. And, um, as a sidebar, n- not too long after that media went out on Twitter, someone, uh, there were a couple, um, replies on Twitter where someone said, Oh, look at this thing in this GitHub. Oh, look at this thing in this GitHub. I bet you that's what it is. <laughs> so, um, you know, even the mitigation kind of gives clues. So you have to be careful about that. But, but yeah, then, um, once that, uh, mitigation technique went out, then there were, uh, fixes put in and then later on the, uh, I mean, very shortly after that, the details of the CVE were published. Um, so it gave people time to get things kind of fixed and mitigated before the, uh, vulnerability was made public. And yeah, from what I remember of the, uh, the really bad OpenSSH pre-auth hole that was, I don't know, a decade ago now, or however long that was, um, it was kind of a similar thing where uh, the only thing that we could really, or that Theo could really say is like, try to um, get privilege separation running on your platform mm-hmm. because there's a bug and it's about to be released. And uh, if you want to protect yourself, try to get uh, privilege separation running. And I, you know, that's how long ago it was where uh, OpenSSH didn't even have privilege separation. Or it was the sandbox, something like that. I think it was the sandboxing. Um, and so the way to mitigate the bug would be to uh, enable the sandboxing. Yeah. But I think similar concerns came up back then, too. It was like, why are you not just disclosing the whole thing? Um, but it's like, it's, you know, for the safety of the Internet at large to have more people uh, patching their servers and upgrading before the full details come out and somebody can write an exploit. Yeah, and I think um, there's murmuring no matter what happens. Um, you know, I, I mean, you and I have talked a little bit about how long um, certain projects take to get things updated. You know, hey, we've known about this thing for six months. Why isn't it done? And then other people talk about, well, the technique should be this. And other people say, well, no, it should be this because 
But uh, in the reality of it all, um, this was handled very timely, um, and it was handled very professionally. And um, I'm, I really like how things occurred with all this because I think, like you said, gives people time to get their stuff fixed. Everybody knows the details of it. There's no like greasing of the palms, like, hey, we'll give you fifty grand if you if you let us know what the problem is before the whatever. You know, I mean, nothing like that goes on. Yeah. And uh, from what Theo uh, messaged me this morning, Qualys actually wanted to wait longer to get more um, time before they re- released the details, and Theo wanted to do it sooner. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's no hiding going on, and I think also too, people were kind of, um, oh, is this a conspiracy? You know, uh, the Swedish government and what all this kind of what? stuff. <laughs> I didn't hear that. Oh uh, yeah, there it, it it was a whole bunch of stuff. That but, internet. Um, internet i may have been trying to stir uh the pot a little bit by asking people but (laughs) after i read some really uh rather trollish comments i needed something a little bit more fun to to do (laughs) well good yeah so lots of good things happening in openbsd um i i'm sure there's many more things that happen this week but we'll kind of wrap it up with that um let's talk about uh virtualization a little bit and and uh, see if we can cover our bases on this. Yeah, so we had a, a request from Joris uh, Van Hecke, or Van Heck, uh, asking about virtualization on OpenBSD because typically Theo is he- uh, Theo, and I guess by association the project has had kind of a stance that virtualization is bad for security, and mm-hmm. that uh, we don't really w- want to encourage it on OpenBSD. And now all of a sudden we have Zen support. We have our own uh, virtualization system that's in the kernel now. Um, so why has this changed? Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about first, like um, virtualization. And I'll go way back to the beginning because um, I remember every time I-, I remember it just coming about, and I kept thinking, why are we adding all this complexity? Oh, by we adding complexity, you mean like the internet at large? Not we, the OpenBSD project? That's right. Or are you talking about adding complexity to OpenBSD? No, I'm talking about adding complexity to um, your software stack. And these companies wanting to virtualize everything, look at how convenient this is. I can have 50 servers on one server and, Mm -hmm. you know, then, oh, look how easy this makes it to manage it and all this kind of stuff. Um, And I was coming from, like, the Solaris LDOMs, right? Um, hardware virtualization and I kind of had like a little bit of experience working on that kind of stuff and um, yeah there's so many different types of virtualization I guess I'm not really going back all the way but initially when you had big things like VMware come about everybody wanted to get everything that they had onto a virtual machine and the technology itself hadn't matured um, and there wasn't a, a very sound understanding of how much effort it was going to be to keep the the host updated and patched and the software on there patched as well as all this guest um, software patched and then you still have your guest software to be patched and maintained and you know everybody said look at how much better this is it's so much easier I can manage 50 machines with so much less effort and I said you still have the operating system upgrades, you still have all these other things and you've added more on top of it. How does that make any of this easier? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and, and then I saw people misusing it, but for whatever reason, virtualization in, you know, the, in the realm of like KVM and Zen and VMware, like spread like wild, wildfire and everybody had to have it everywhere. So, um, and, and, and really I remember using it and thinking this is like, uh, a quarter of the speed that I'm used to on my servers. Um, and, and we had, you know, varying loads. Some of our loads were IO intensive and some of them were CPU intensive. And we just put them all on the same server with the same kind of configuration. And so they both suffered, um, really poorly from it. So, um, initially I, I don't think that the, the, you know, the solutions were very good. And, um, there was a, there was a ton of attack surface, I suppose you could say with these, uh, hypervisors and all these tools being installed on the, on the guests and, um, just millions and millions of lines of code, right? In VMware. Uh, well, we'll say hundreds of thousands of lines of code. And, um, and I think, you know, all that put together, I never really looked at virtualization as like a, a home run or a slam dunk. I saw a lot of people just saying like, oh, look, now I have four servers. And I'm like, yeah, but they all do the same thing. <laughs> and, you know, and they would like take, um, you'd go from like four pizza box, one U servers sitting in there doing, being redundant of each other. And they'd put them on one ESX host and they do the same thing. And they're like, look at how much better this is. Never really made sense to me. Or maybe I just saw people misusing them a lot. Um, and then the other piece that, uh, of this thing, just talking about virtualization is I, I see a lot of people like, um, a place where I've worked and their workload was very peaky. And so it wasn't really a really good fit for virtualization because, you know, you had to kind of plan the host for the peak workloads and the peak workloads were really, really high. So, um, you know, 20 or 30 virtual machines on a single host and the host was basically idle most of the time. And then you would have these large peak workloads that would happen regularly. And it made no sense to have them sitting on the same source, uh, same set of resources. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, one of the other things I'll say, just kind of like maybe leading into something we'll talk about in a little bit here is, um, I remember a lot of people running Java applications in VMware early on. And I re- remember VMware distinctly. I remember this was even maybe perhaps documented. Um, but VMware had trouble keeping up with the interrupt storm that the JVM created when you launched a new process. Um, and we ran a lot of Java stuff and I just said, why are we doing this? We're putting our database workloads on there and they're a quarter of the speed. We're putting these JVM, um, instances on here and, you know, VMware just doesn't handle this huge int storm when we fire it up and um it was kind of like known issues but we did it anyway so that's my little um five minute rant about or five minute background about virtualization and how it came to be in my eyes mm-hmm. and then maybe uh you can talk a little bit about um how that leads into theo's stance um or the things that he said about virtualization um that uh joris was talking about yeah, well, I think it's important to remember that none of these uh, popular virtualization systems like Zen uh, were written as a security tool. They were written, uh, you know, to cram more stuff on less hardware so it's cheaper, 
or for the convenience of, you know, somebody click pointing and clicking to manage all that. Mm -hmm. So when you have a solution like the, uh, the cubes OS that runs on top of Zen and, um, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically like a desktop system that runs Linux, but every, um, like major application is run in its own, uh, virtual machine. So like your web browser is completely separated from your word processor, from your PDF viewer, from your chat program. Mm -hmm. Um, and they keep having like security vulnerabilities in cubes OS that they have to like release or that they have to patch and then like release an advisory for due to security problems in Zen. I think the last major one was like the, a bug in the Zen floppy disk driver. Like, what is that? The entire security of your operating system is compromised because your virtualization, your hypervisor supports floppy disks and it yeah. didn't, they didn't write the code very well. Mm -hmm. So people using them as a, as a way to, uh, secure their systems, um, really need to take a look at all of the code that's running in that hypervisor and decide for themselves, like, whether that is actually more secure than, than not using it. Mm hmm. So that's kind of the stance that Theo took on it is that, uh, hypervisors don't add security. If anything, they, they take away security because of all the extra code that you're running, um, from a system that wasn't really designed for security. So that's kind of, uh, why there hasn't been much movement, uh, for virtualization support with OpenBSD. And I think the, um, the VMM system, or I guess it's VM now, um, that the virtualization system that's built into OpenBSD is written from, you know, it's written by OpenBSD developers, so it's written with security in mind, and it's written so that your base uh, system can be OpenBSD, which is secure in itself, and then everything that you'd have running on top of that can gain security by running on top of OpenBSD and running inside of a hypervisor that was designed with security in mind. Yeah, that's right, and and not only security in mind, but making use of kind of the the core features that um OpenBSD provides uh privilege separation um the XOR um you know kind of writer execute memory regions um and all the other cryptographic soundness and um you know simplicity I think so when we were talking about how many lines of code there are in a hypervisor um, VMM diff was several hundred lines of code. I mean, you could read it in an afternoon and understand what was going on. Um, the, the kernel bits were, I want to say a couple hundred lines and then the, uh, like VMM and VMCTL, maybe a few hundred lines each. Is it, does that sound right to you? Uh, I have actually not even looked at any of that code. But, uh, where I'm going with that is there's, um, so much more simplicity and um i know some of the beehive people asked you know why didn't you use beehive as a starting point um and and i think the the issue was actually a technical one and you know we wanted to have the privilege separation and all that kind of stuff uh set up from the from the beginning now i'm i again like i don't know too much about this but i know that that there were technical reasons that went into you know uh mike larkin writing our own hypervisor for openvsd so mm -hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, for people, so I don't know, here's my use case for running a hypervisor is, um, you know, right now, if I want to test a kernel or test some code 
rather than you know rebooting my machine, I can start up a virtual machine, virtual machine, and test out the kernel and test out the program or whatever without taking the risk of uh, hosing up my entire laptop. Mm-hmm. So, in, you know, in the case of uh, pledging programs, um, <laughs> there's been a couple times where there's been uh, some sharp edges and, you know, uh, the pledge isn't quite right or you're testing out um, pledging a new program and you get it a little bit wrong and, you know, you kind of hose up your machine and you, I don't know, um, some programs crash. <laughs> yeah. And and that's just a little bit easier inside of a virtual machine. Um yeah, and so, I think certainly once we get the ability to kind of hand off devices to the virtual machine, um, so you can like uh, hand off the USB controller or a USB device to the to the virtual machine mm-hmm. to allow you to quickly iterate over uh, writing a, a kernel driver or something like that. I mean, writing the I2C controller driver on my laptop, I've probably had to reboot, I don't know, 30 times a day because yeah. I test something and I, the only way to really test it is to reboot it and see what it does. Um, so having the ability to, to write kernel drivers and stuff that way, it should, uh, speed things up a lot as far as developing new drivers and things. Um, and on the other side, as far as running OpenBSD inside of a, uh, hypervisor with the Zen support that we got, um, I think it's important to know that that's not an endorsement of running OpenBSD in Zen. Like we're not advising everybody to go move all your OpenBSD servers to, AWS or something like that. It's basically just another, you know, it's, it's more, it's a, f- a few more device drivers that we have in the kernel for all the other hardware that we support. So if you want to run OpenBSD on your, um, inside of a hypervisor, you can, uh, but that's not to say that we think it's a good idea or that it's, uh, secure or anything like that. It's just, you know, um, more support for more hardware. Yeah. And I think too, I mean, maybe someone has the case where they want to fire up uh, an OpenBSD instance and build some packages or test something out and they don't want to do it on, you know, their own equipment or they want to try OpenBSD out and they say, Hey, I can just throw it on, you know, this virtual machine. You know, that's another perfect case. Or if you're going to debug something or try something out, uh, maybe OpenBSD isn't your primary operating system, you know, here's another alternative uh, that kind of lowers the barrier to try that out. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think uh, virtualization is kind of an interesting thing. Um, I I know that uh, it's a very widely used tool, and um, I know I see it very also widely misused. So, um, you know, just be careful of the sharp edges and kind of understand a little bit what you're getting into when you use virtualization. Um, when, when Theo is talking about, um, you know, uh, uh, virtualization and why would you trust these people to get virtualization right? I, you, you know, we look at all these operating systems that have just tons and tons and tons of, uh, vulnerabilities in them. Um, there's CVEs filed all the time for all sorts of software. Operating systems are very complex. They're very hard to get right. And I think we could probably argue to our listeners that uh, OpenBSD probably is one of the better operating systems um, as far as getting things right and doing things correctly. And, um, you know, his argument was that if you can't build an operating system well, what makes you think you're going to build something that interfaces with an operating system 
adds a, a, a compatibility layer between two operating systems and you're going to get that right. You know, it, you know, it, it's kind of like saying if you can't lay brick, you're not going to be able to build a, a bridge or a tower, you know, because you can't build a walkway, you know, so. Yeah. On like being able to make a, an operating system correctly. I mean, the part of the reason that OpenBSD has so many, uh, mitigation techniques, um, like what you were mentioning before is because we're not going to get it right. We're not going to make it perfect. So if we make an error, uh, and there are things to, there are safety nets, um, that can prevent an exploit from, you know, gaining root privileges or something like that. You know, that, those are safety things that you don't have on other operating systems. Um, but hopefully we didn't make the bug in the first place. Yeah. I mean, and that kind of stuff has been around for ages. I mean, if you look at the way compilers are set up, um, you know, it's built to protect you from bugs and applications, uh, allowing bad things to happen on your, on your computer. So yeah, um, that's virtualization in a nutshell. Um, that's a little bit about why OpenBSD started to make their own hypervisor. Um, maybe a couple ideas of what it's used for. I know, um, so I want to touch on something real quick. Um, like we, we had, um, I, I shouldn't say we, so, I know a company had um, um, a machine, a virtual machine running uh, that was public-facing, and it was also sitting on a host that shared um, internal machines, quote-unquote tw- trusted machines. And, you know, I, I kind of questioned, I said, you know, why are we doing this? Like, this, this is really scary and really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I was told, oh, no, 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 it's secure because the... The one guest goes back out through our firewall and then comes back into the trusted network. <laughs> and, you know, I, I just started to think about it in my head and I'll relive that for just a second here. And I thought we have a packet that comes into a physical, um, uh, ethernet jack and then there's an interrupt fired or something happens where the host operating system knows what it's supposed to do with it. And then that host has network drivers and it has a kernel and it has um, some routing tables or rules that it's supposed to execute. And then it passes it along to some, you know, virtual network driver in some virtualization technology that then goes to another Ethernet adapter. And I thought about it and, I, you know, that packet is sitting on a, it hits a physical machine right inside your network. And, and that was enough to, to just make me go, this is crazy. You mm-hmm. know, there's, there's no way I can trust someone to configure these routes to make sure that they aren't. And, you know, that's what the VMware folks were telling me. Oh, you can VLAN this off. And I was like, listen, VLANing and networking aside, I'm looking at something that's hitting a physical machine, layer one here. And, you know, I, I just don't trust that they got the network driver right. I don't trust that they got their kernel right. I don't trust that they got their packet filtering right. I don't trust any of it. Um, and so it, it just really made me kind of pause and, and think about, you know, these best practices that people are advocating and preaching out there. I, I, I find it really hard to just trust them uh, with that kind of stuff because it just doesn't make very much sense to me. Yeah. Maybe, maybe someone will prove me wrong on that, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah, I mean, is is VMware going to tell you that their stuff is insecure? I I don't think so. Yeah, it just doesn't if make a if good. If you're talking to a salesman or something, 
<laughs> yeah, it doesn't make a good business proposition to say, well, we're pretty good. Uh, we don't have it all quite figured out yet. Uh, we're better than a lot of guys, but not as good as some of the best. Yeah. No, they're not going to sell that. All right. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, I don't think so. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground th- tonight. If there's anything uh, you listeners would like us to talk about in a future episode, uh, you can reach us on Twitter at GarbageFM, subscribe to the show's RSS feed on our website at Garbage.fm, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Uh, Brandon, where can people find you? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at NoMercyMod with a K-N-O-W. And I'm on the web at JCS.org and on Twitter at JCS. Great. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you listening.